Veterans Affairs is marking milestones helping veterans, but the department secretary says the work is far from over. Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. There's no doubt that having more vets in our care, having more vets file claims, having more vets getting benefits means additional challenges for us. But I consider those, you know, high-class problems. And the Army's recruiting reforms may be taking a page from a past playbook. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Jonathan Lairfeld. Today is November 9th, 2023. A quick note for listeners, be sure to tune in tomorrow for an episode about a platoon that was part of the Battle of Mogadishu, but hasn't been recognized for its actions. And on Monday, we'll talk about how psychedelics may soon be available to help treat vets with mental health issues. First up, Veterans Day is this weekend, and our Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Leo Shane III sat down recently with Secretary of Veterans Affairs Dennis McDonough. They had a wide-ranging conversation about the Secretary's plans for the coming year and the challenges they present. You've been talking lately at a handful of events about all the records the VA has set in the last year, record number of claims processed, record number of healthcare outreach, healthcare appointments. Um, I, I wonder, looking ahead, if there is concern that VA is growing too fast. I know you want to reach as many veterans as possible, but there are hiring issues, there are access issues, there are quite a few ways that this can go wrong if veterans, you know, find that they're they're facing long wait times, or they're finding yep. problems in that. So how how do you balance all of this outreach, all this all this advance with just making sure the systems can keep up? You know, part of the answer is we meant it when we said we wanted the PACT Act to be passed and implemented. And we meant it because we really want vets to be in our care. And so there's no doubt that having more vets in our care, having more vets file claims, having more vets getting benefits means additional challenges for us. But I consider those you know, high-class problems. And so we set out this year anticipating there was going to be a challenge on claims processing As I was talking with you earlier today, we started in September 2021 using expiring 2021 funds to increase hiring at VBA. And we've only continued that since, anticipating we're going to have more vets in VHA care. Last year, after the president signed the PACT Act, we made FY23 a year of hiring. And, you know, we wanted to hire roughly 52,000 people. We hired more than 61,000. So we can see around corners, we can see what's coming, and I consider it a high-class problem if veterans are coming in and wanting to have a relationship with us. On the benefits side, yes, um, that's that's one in particular where you've done a lot of hiring, you said you've been investing in this, but you've also been upfront saying the backlog is going to increase yes. over the next few months. Yep. Uh, sometime in 2024, it'll crest and then it'll come back down. That That's one where it's, and I've heard this criticism from both Capitol Hill and from veterans, um, that it's hard to see progress when you see the backlog going up yes. as, as forward as you have been. So how do you, how do you manage that message of 
we are in a better place. We are we are getting there, but it's going to look worse for a while. Yeah. Again, it doesn't matter what we say. That's really important to me. It matters what the veteran experience is. If we have veterans who are getting their claims resolved quickly, who maybe are not getting every claim resolved, you know, oftentimes a claim uh, may have 8, 10, 12 different components. And so if we can start resolving pieces of that and start getting veterans their benefits, even while we resolve the other pieces of that claim, the veteran experience there, the quality of life that that veteran is experiencing is improving. So we, we, we want the veteran experience to drive people's expectations here. The one thing we are going to continue to do is just hold ourselves to account for regular reporting. I do this with you. You're, you're the most vigorous questioner on this every month. And frankly, it was your questioning that led us to decide to put out every two weeks a dashboard publicly that says, here's where we are. And we're not saying, hey, we're doing great. We're not saying, hey, we're doing poorly. We're saying, here's where we are. You guys be the judge. Congress will be the judge. You'll be the judge. We'll defend what we're doing. But at the end of the day, what we say we're doing is not that important. What veterans are telling us they're experiencing, that's what's important. Speaking of Congress, you've had, uh, I know you've had a relationship with them, but it does feel yeah. like things are getting strained on a few issues, abortion in particular. Yeah. I don't know uh, when we're going to see subpoenas from the House Veterans Affairs Committee, but I expect they will be pretty soon. They've been pushing you for additional data on that. Um, why, why the insistence on not providing the specifics that they have asked for? I'm going to let them characterize where they, where they think we are, because I, I feel like we've made good progress. But I think there's two principles at play here. One is the fact that Article One of the Constitution, you know, the congressional power, among the really important powers that the founders gave to Article One, is the need to oversee the execution of policies by the executive. So oversight is a critically important principle. And you've heard me say this since the day I started. I've always said that oversight of us by our members of Congress, uh, by our committees, makes us better, doesn't make us worse. So that's the first principle. The second principle is a veteran has a relationship with her doctor. That relationship is a very important relationship. Think of the relationship that you have with your doctor, I have with mine. I feel duty-bound to protect that relationship. So that's principle number two. And so far, uh, we've been able to manage those two principles such that we are fulfilling our obligations or we're fulfilling principle number one without compromising principle number two. But I also know that if it comes to a point, we've not reached this point yet, if it comes to a point where those two principles are in conflict, I have to protect our clinician's relationship with the veteran because the veteran comes to VA with that expectation. In other news, the Army appears to have remodeled its recruiting reforms after a command that was dismantled previously because of budget cuts, not performance. For more on this, Army Times senior reporter Davis Winkie joins the episode today. Hey, Davis. For those catching up, what's been going on with Army recruiting? Army recruiting has had its struggles, which have been ongoing longer than many people knew. 
burst into the fore over the past couple of years when the service very publicly missed its accessions targets, which is the, the number of troops it needs to ship to basic training in order to keep the ranks filled. That led the Army to announce a series of major reforms to recruiting that are going to be rolling out gradually over the years ahead. They include creating a new career field for recruiters that's all volunteer and aligned with human resources. It also includes other changes, such as on the organizational chart, where now Army Marketing will report to recruiting, and Army Cadet Command, which oversees most of the Army's officer recruiting in a session, will report to Recruiting Command as well, and Recruiting Command will become a three-star headquarters that reports directly to the Army Secretary. Those changes are familiar to people who know the story of Accessions Command. What was Accessions Command, and why does it suddenly matter again? Accessions Command was a three-star headquarters founded in the wake of 9-11, even though it had been identified as a need earlier than that, that aimed to take responsibility for everything that happens with a recruit until they make it to their first unit. The vision was that this command would oversee their the marketing that woos them, the recruiting that brings them in. It oversaw the military entrance processing stations or maps where they would be screened and given their job. And at first, it also oversaw basic training and advanced individual training to get them qualified in their jobs before they Hit, hit their first units. Uh, eventually, that command shifted a little bit over time. It had the initial training responsibility split off, but it maintained the cadet command, the marketing, and the enlisted recruiting side of things all the way until 2012 when it was eliminated as part of widespread budget cuts and belt tightening across the Army. The um, press releases announcing it celebrated the number of jobs that were being cut. There were a later management report crowed the fact that they'd saved a quarter of a billion dollars by eliminating this headquarters. But <laughs> what we found is that that moment coincides with a terminal decline in the Army's ability to recruit. You see, the Army needs to recruit more people each year than it actually needs to go to training. It has a contract goal and then a ship to training goal. The contract goal used to feed what's called a delayed entry pool, which is people who are signed and waiting to go to training. Think of somebody who signs during their senior year of high school, but they can't ship until after they graduate, for example. The delayed entry pool, when, when a session's command ended, represented more than 58% of the following year's recruiting targets. They were recruiting ahead. But over time, the Army started missing its contract goals and hasn't made its contract goals since 2014, which meant that it's had to borrow from that delayed entry pool over time. And nowadays, it's less than 8% of the upcoming fiscal year's recruiting goals that are already signed. And that's what led us to this point. The fact that the amount of contracts being signed hasn't been enough for almost a decade. And it took the Army almost a decade to get spurred into the drastic action that we're seeing today. And it appears that 
the study task force that looked into how to transform army recruiting took some notes from the accessions command playbook when it came to making sure that marketing, recruiting, and cadet command all lived under the same roof. This seems to be a good thing, right? Were there any things that your sources were worried about? Yeah, there were. And and I will say that everybody I spoke with for this story sees this as a important chance for the Army to get this right in an enduring manner. You know, they've now realized that if you don't have these functions coordinated together, living under the same roof, answering to the same boss who has the right expertise advising them, you're not going to have peak performance between these functions. Because Army marketing does not report to the same people as Army recruiting, and it hasn't been that way ever since the Sessions Command was abolished. But what my sources are most worried about are two things. One is that even though you're bringing marketing back into the recruiting chain of command, is the recruiting command general going to have the expert staff advice available to him or her structured in a manner such that they have the information to make the right decisions when it comes to integrating recruiting and marketing. You know, generals are only as good as the information they have to make decisions, and the information they get is largely dependent on the way that their staffs are structured and empowered. And then also for generals to be able to act on the information they have, and we're getting into the second concern now, is they need to have the authorities resources, and opportunity to take action on the info they have. So even though they move to have the recruiting command report directly to the army secretary, is ostensibly going to flatten the chain to request new resources, as opposed to having to request it through training and doctrine command, where recruiting command lives now. There's concern that Bringing recruiting command, which is in the field operating to bring people in underneath the direct supervision of people who are predominantly focused on policy for their day-to-day jobs, might turn into a bureaucratic quagmire. So when the recruiting command CG goes to the secretary's office and says, I need this, I need this, I need this, is the answer going to be, hey, you can have it, go make things happen? Or is the answer going to be, Let's consider this. Let's study this. Let's take our time. It's a question of whether recruiting command is going to have the freedom to do what it needs to do without being held back by red tape, frankly. And that's what my sources, who included the former head of Accessions Command, included the former chief marketing officer of Accessions Command, and included the former director of the Army's current marketing office, They all identified resources and authorities as the key point of risk here. If the Army gets that wrong in their eyes, this experiment will fail. Thanks, Davis. For more conversations like this one, please like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Also on the radar for today, Latino veterans are more likely to be homeowners, reach higher levels of education, and earn greater incomes than their civilian peers. That's according to a new report from the University of California, Los Angeles's Latino Policy and Politics Institute. The study is part of a data set that relies on information the U.S. Census Bureau collected from 2017 to 2021. 
here's why it matters. Latino identifying veterans make up a growing share of America's former service members. The U.S. veteran population shrank by nearly half between 2000 and 2021. But the number of Latino veterans grew from 1.1 million to 1.3 million in the same time period, according to the report. Researchers expect that trend to continue. For context, the Pentagon reported in its annual demographics update that nearly 360,000 Latino and Hispanic service members served in the U.S. Armed Forces in 2022. Latinos are the military's fastest-growing demographic, comprising about 17% of all troops in 2022. But those gains have proven uneven across the force and in the highest levels of military leadership. According to the Congressional Research Service, as of May 2018, about 8% of active-duty officers who commanded units and earned more pay than their enlisted counterparts identified as Hispanic. And 2% of the general officers that lead the military's largest organizations likewise identified as Hispanic. And now, here are some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. The Senate Rules Committee will meet next week to discuss a move to end Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade on military promotions. If the Senate passes the proposed resolution, it would allow senators to confirm promotions in batches and with minimal debate, if the Senate Armed Services Committee has approved the nominees. This week, Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh gave an update on the number of individuals affected. There are now 452 nominations, which concern 448 general and flag officers at the Senate for consideration and that are currently impacted by Senator Tuberville's holds. Some of the positions that are stalled for confirmation include the 5th Fleet Commander, the Deputy 5th Fleet Commander, the Defense Attaché to Israel, and the list goes on. The committee hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. The Pentagon announced yesterday that the head of the department's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, better known as its UFO office, will retire next month. And Russian President Vladimir Putin said Moscow and Beijing should expand their cooperation on military satellites and other prospective defense technologies. Putin spoke at a meeting with China's second-ranking military official. And on this day in history, in 1938, Nazis in Germany torched synagogues, vandalized Jewish homes, schools, and businesses, and committed murder in what became known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at Defense underscore News and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Lairfeld, and produced by Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode features stories by Leo Shane III, Davis Winkie, and Zimone Perez. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruss. Have a great day.